0: 50 five, zero, episode number 50. That's a little bit of a milestone all by itself. And coincidentally, as I sit recording this right now, I just got a notification in my email from Buzzsprout that we hit our 10,000th download just now. Anyway, I'm super excited for that. And I just want to thank everybody who's listened to the show, who's told a friend about the show, who's passed along information about the show. You know, it's, it's been a labor of love for me. I enjoy doing it. Uh, thank you to all the wonderful guests, both the aspiring investors and the experienced investors. I think they're the ones that have really made this show what it is today. And speaking of, thank you for all of those who have left reviews. And speaking of reviews, as promised... We will give another $25 gift card away to the winner of this week's review writing contest. Not really a contest, just write a review. I pick the best one every week. Um, This one's from Anthony Grover, and he said, Great podcast, full of value. I always look forward to listening to one of Brian's episodes. He's done a great job setting his podcast apart from the rest. The setup where the newbie investor gets to ask the experienced investor questions is just an all-around awesome idea. You'll learn tons every week by listening to this podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Anthony, and uh, give me a shout out. You know, Contact me on LinkedIn or my email address, uh, which is in the show notes, and I'll get that $25 gift card wrapped up and sent on the way to you. Thanks a lot. So as mentioned, today is a multifamily brief episode, so we're going to talk about one aspect of the apartment investing journey. Today, we're going to talk about conservative underwriting. Now, I know, I know, you hear it from just about everybody everybody is underwriting conservatively, or everybody says they're underwriting conservatively. But something I'd like to point out, there was a study done a long time ago, and I read it in a book somewhere or listened to it. I don't know where I heard it. I'm going to completely make up a statistic, but it's pretty close to true, right? So like 75% of people think they're above average drivers, okay? I don't know if that's that's the exact number, but it's, it's approximately that proportion where most people think that they're better than average. And I think underwriting conservatively is the same thing. Now, as a passive investor, as a deal sponsor, you want to underwrite your property fairly conservatively. You want to make sure that you have a little bit of wiggle room here and there to be able to weather out any storms that come along your way. And personally, I like the philosophy of under-promising and over-delivering in the end. I mean, if, if your deal works, let's say you underwrite the deal and it's at an 18% you know, IRR or something like that, um, I'd rather advertise a 15% IRR and hit the 18% IRR than the other way around. So let's talk about a couple of things that deal sponsors should be doing to underwrite the property conservatively. So the first thing I wanna talk about is the vacancy rate. You know, what vacancy rate are you using for a property? And this is something that can easily be over- or underestimated and will drastically affect your overall numbers. When you're analyzing a property, you should know what the average vacancy rate for a market is, and not just the market, but you wanna break that down to neighborhood if you can. Some of the big data sources like CoStar or Yardi will have information on vacancy rate by neighborhood and by asset class. And there is gonna be a wide variation in vacancy rates between say A class in an area and C class in an area. Now let's look at an example. Let's say the average vacancy rate in a particular market for a C-class asset is 6%. Do you just underwrite 6% into your deal? Well, if you want to underwrite it conservatively, you probably should factor in a slight little fudge factor there for a little extra vacancy. Maybe you factor in a 7.5% vacancy rate. But what's more, if you're doing a value add project, you need to make sure that you're factoring in the extra vacancies that are going to take place because you're taking units down to renovate them. Let's just look at some numbers, you know, for a medium reposition, let's say it takes three weeks to fully renovate one of the units and get it back rented. That three week period for that one unit, three weeks out of 52 months is roughly 6% vacancy. So just by renovating that one unit, you have a 6% vacancy rate on that one individual unit. Now, let's say your, your renovation plan includes renovating 100% of those units and you're going to do 40% the first year. Well, you pull out your handy-dandy calculator, and you realize that you're going to have to add 25 to 3% extra vacancy just to account for what you are rehabbing, because you are not going to be collecting rents during the months that you're going to be doing the rehab. Now, let's look at the the rental price, for example. Let's say you're you're walking into a deal, you look at it, and all the rents are below market rates, okay? And of course, the, the vacancy rate is going to be extremely low on something like this, because when you're renting something at below market rates, people tend to go there first. People tend to stay there longer just because it is a better deal. It's a supply and demand problem. But here's the deal. If you're going to go in and raise the rents, the vacancy rate is also going to go on the rise. By raising the price, you are moving the supply and demand curves. So if a property was operating at you know, a 4 or 5% vacancy and they were sitting at about $100 under the market rents, if you raise the rents to current market rate, you want to add a couple of percentages to factor in for that vacancy. How do you figure out how much to raise? Well, start looking at the comps. right? Some of the comps are going to be at the top of the market. Look at those specific comps and see if you can find out what the vacancy rate for those comps are. And a lot of times your big data sources like your co-stars will have that information. So as a passive investor or somebody who's interested in looking at deals, make sure you ask about the vacancy rate on the underwriting for any deal you're looking at investing in. Now, the next subject very much related to vacancy is the bad debt and collections. You know, Right now, we're in what some people call a crisis. I don't think it's that bad, but there is a higher than average bad debt at most properties. What that means is simply there are more people than normal who haven't paid rent. If you compare 2020 to 2019 on a national level, the numbers are actually very similar. So there's not that big of an uptick. But in general, every year or even every month, depending on how big your, com- your apartment complex is, you are going to have some people who don't pay. And over the course of the year, you may have a lot of people that don't pay. But there is that bad deadline that you have on your underwriting to account for how many people don't pay. Now, if you add the bad debt line up with the vacancy rate, you get what's called the economic occupancy or I guess if you do it in that order, it'd be the economic vacancy, but this is not not just a physical vacancy, which is how many people are currently renting units, but how many people are renting units and paying their rent on a monthly basis. So don't underestimate the vacancy, don't underestimate the bad debt, put a little bit of a buffer in between what you're using, and if you're renovating, you're gonna have to put an extra buffer to account for those renovations. Now, the next thing I'll talk about are the rent increases that are planned for the property. For example, if the property is lagging behind market rents, an ownership group is probably planning on raising those rents. But how fast can you raise those rents? In most cases, the tenants of the property are going to be on annual leases, okay, and that lease is going to specify the amount of rent that they have. So if you come into a property, you need to honor the leases that the tenants have already signed. Now, what that means for raising rents is you're not going to be able to raise rents immediately to bring things back up to market level, unless in the odd chance that you have 100% of the tenants to run month-to-month leases. In that case, you can go ahead and raise rents as high as you want, but just be careful because if you do it too fast, you may have a mass exodus on your hands. And what's worse, having higher rents in an empty apartment building or keeping rents where they are for a little bit? Now, if there's a significant gap between the current rents at a property and the market rents, you may want to incrementally raise the rate so you don't have that mass exodus. But bottom line on raising rents, you're not going to be able to do it all at once. So when we're underwriting, we look at phasing the, the rent increases in over a couple year period, not all in year one, because you're not going to be able to do it. Now, the same thing holds true for properties that you're renovating. If you come in and renovate a property, we already talked about the vacancy it's going to cause... But if you're going to renovate 40% of the units year one and 40% of the units year two and 20% of the units year three, that's a two and a half year renovation period. Now, if you start immediately and you keep on rolling through, you should be able to harvest 20% of those rent increases in year one, 40% of the rent increases in year two, and 40% of those rent increases in year three. Trust me on those numbers. I've got two degrees in math. Moral of the story on this one is the same as what we talked about for bringing things up to market rents. Don't plan all of your rent increases in year one. It's not going to happen. Now, the third thing associated with rent increases is what is your annual rent escalator? What does that mean? Well, every year rents typically go up. In some areas, the, the rent increase year over year is higher. In some areas, it's lower. But be wary about planning too high of a rent increase year over year in your underwriting. Now, there are some areas that have sustained high year-over-year rent growth. And typically, those are the areas that are trading at a much lower cap rate. But on average, rent increases year-over-year are going to be somewhere between 2 and 3%. Why do I pick that number? Well, 2% is the target federal rate for inflation. So if money is being devalued every year at a rate of about 2%, then correspondingly, rents should go up at approximately the same rate of 2%. Of course, there's other factors to weigh in there. You know, Supply and demand imbalances can also create larger percentages there. But on average, nationwide, the expected rent growth for this year was forecasted to be somewhere between 2 and 3%. And if somebody is using a higher rent escalator than, than a 2 to 3%, ask the question. Make sure the market is going to sustain it. Now, I'm not saying all markets are only going to have 2%. I'm just saying that that's a safe, conservative number to use. In any market, and once again, markets with very high population growth typically have correspondingly very high rent growths. Now, the next thing I'm going to talk about is what is your exit cap rate, and you know, if you're not familiar with cap rate, we got a couple episodes dedicated to that. But the cap rate is how we determine value based on an income stream. So basically, the higher the cap rate, the lower the property is going to be valued. The lower the cap rate, the higher the property is going to be valued. Cap rates are at historic lows right now. Can we expect them to stay low? I don't know is the question. I don't think anybody knows. If I had a crystal ball, well, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be fabulously wealthy already. But I don't have a crystal ball and neither does anybody else. But what cap rate somebody uses at the exit is important. If somebody is relying on further cap rate compression, aka the cap rate going down, to be able to make money on a deal, you know that is not guaranteed. It's, it's a very risky play. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. It is possible that cap rates continue to go down, but the more conservative way to underwrite, and oh, by the way, the way your banks are going to underwrite the loan amount is with a cap rate that goes up over the years. So if the current market cap rate is, say, 6%, and you're going to hold the property for roughly five years, you may want to look at an underwriting the property at a 6.5% exit cap, or maybe even a little more conservatively at a 7% exit cap. Now, this episode is already longer than I had planned, so I'm just going to talk about one more thing as far as how to be conservative with your underwriting, and that's the refinance. Rates right now are at historic lows, and same thing I'm going to say with cap rates, I'm going to say about interest rates. Can we expect interest rates to stay at the rock bottom levels they are right now? I don't know. Once again, no crystal ball. But if you're underwriting a deal or you're looking to invest in a deal that hinges on a successful refinance, you just want to make sure you know what what assumptions they're making on that refinance. Are they using today's low rates or have they put a little buffer in there? Are they expecting to refinance at an eighty percent loan to value or seventy-five, which is a little bit safer? And here's the deal, and once again I'm gonna tout my, my accolades in the in the math world. Once again two a bachelor's and a master's degree in math. You know, I, I can tell you that the refinance is a very easy way to boost your numbers. You know, so if you're if you're a wannabe syndicator and you want to show you have a lot higher returns than you actually do, play around with your refinance numbers. Use a lower interest rate or use a higher loan to value than you may actually get, and that's really going to boost the return for your investors on paper. And you may be right, but on the other hand, you may be wrong. Now, to wrap it all up, there is the other thing that if if you underwrite too conservatively on every single line, you're never going to win any bids. Your your offer price is going to be so incredibly low that you're not even going to be in the ballpark on everything. One thing you can do is you can underwrite to three different scenarios. Underwrite the most conservative or the worst case scenario where you have a high vacancy rate, a high bad debt rate. Maybe you don't get your rent bumps in two years. Maybe it takes you four years. Maybe you don't get the full rent bumps in. All right. Maybe your exit cap is a lot higher than it is today. Maybe that refinance doesn't quite work out. See what happens when you do an ultra-conservative run-through of the numbers. And once you do that, you might as well do the opposite. Okay, look at the numbers very aggressively. What happens if you're able to run that property at a 2% vacancy rate when the market's 6%, and you can raise rents, and you can renovate everything and get that all taken care of? What happens to the property then? Obviously, your returns are going to go through the roof. And then find that happy median, the most likely scenario of what's going to happen. By doing this, you're going to be able to see what the range of outcomes is and how likely it is that you actually lose money. That's it for today's show. Stay tuned Friday for the next Ask the Expert episode, where we're going to bring on Daniel Homland and Luke Dubrow. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at foreoakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show. So pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.